Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Andrew Mason. Hello. I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about Docker. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Dave sounded less excited about this when it came up, but he brought it up, so. <laughs> well, you know, because it's one of those technologies that's kind of fresh, you know, between Docker and Kubernetes. It's both a, a fresh thing that some companies are starting to adopt. And I think that it has some really good uses. And then I've also seen it really, really abused. So it's really a matter of where does Docker fit into your development lifecycle? Does it belong on your development machine? Does it belong in your CI CD? Or does it belong in your production environment? So I mean, there's three main aspects where, you know, okay, our company says we have to use Docker. Now, how do we use it? Where does it fit in? Yeah, we could spend an entire episode just talking about using Docker in development. I mean, that in itself is not fun. Well, but it solves all your problems. I mean, it's made out of rainbows and and crushed up Lucky Charms. So it's wonderful, or at least so I'm told. I I haven't had that experience either. You know, I've set up a Docker file and then banged my head against the wall to try and figure out how to get it to be exactly what I want. Yeah. Yeah. So in short, I think that if you are following good architectural practices, and if you were not, is, right? <laughs> <laughs> and if your application is relatively simple, meaning that you don't have too many moving parts, you've not introduced the microservices nightmare or anything like that. And if you use Docker, you're going to be able to get it up and running pretty quickly. And then you'd be like, okay, so what's the point of Docker? Like, this is hurting my workflow. It's not helping it. Right. So this is all in the development environment side of things. But if you've not followed good practices, you are using something like a bunch of different modules or microservices, and they're all loosely dependent on one another. So you have to have them up and running in order to have your application testable within your local environment. And then not only that, but each one is running different gem versions or different... Uh, Ruby versions, then that's where things get a little bit more complicated. And that's where Docker can really kind of shine to some degree. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think my favorite part about Docker, like I, sometimes it's a little painful, but I still do it. I develop in Docker, staging and productions Docker. So the one thing that I absolutely love about Docker is that if it works on my machine, 
it's going to work in production. It's going to work everywhere. And that has, I have not had that problem ever since I started using Docker. And I used to hit it like a couple of times, it seemed per feature or not per feature, but I hit it a lot. Yeah, that's that's where I see people talking a lot about it. And my experience has been, so the first time I used Docker, I actually set it up and I basically just set it up like I set up a regular server. And then, of course, I get told almost immediately, no, wait, you can't do that. Don't put your database in there. Don't put this in there. Don't put that in there. Anything you want to keep, you know, so any of your static uh, files, you know, like images and things. Yeah, don't put that in there. And so then it's like, okay, so how do I not set this up the same way I've set up Rails for the rest of my life? And, you know, but but yeah, my experience has been the same as Andrew's in the sense that, yeah, if I can get it up in a Docker container and I can get that Docker container to somebody else or the Docker file or the specification or whatever, right, they can set it up on their end too and it works. So, I mean, I, I, I see some benefits, but then it's like, okay, but best practices are super confusing. And it's like, okay, what can I put in there? What can I put in there? Of course, the other promise that I see is that there are a lot of managed Kubernetes clusters out there that you can use. I think AWS has one. I'm, I know Microsoft has one in Azure. And so then it's, oh, so once I have the Docker container specified, then pushing and scaling can all be handled for me. I don't have to actually go and learn Kubernetes, right? I can just throw it at the cloud and the cloud will make it run. And so that's the other appeal to me, at least, that I see. Yeah, I mean, one thing that you kind of hit on there is I feel like the Rails community has not, we don't have best practices for Docker yet. I mean, if you look on GitHub for projects or Rails projects that are have Docker files, Everything's different. The setup for all of them is slightly different. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So I think we're like coming into this like new world. Like Docker is not new, but as like a rail as Rails devs start using Docker, I mean, I think we're all kind of floundering a little bit because we don't have those best practices yet. Yeah. And I guess to just kind of give a rundown of what some of the Docker terminology you have images. So you build a image. Think of it like an ISO or a CD image. From that image, you're going to have your operating system and then whatever you've built into there. So you have a Docker file, which you can then use to build your Docker images. And from in there, in the Docker file, you can do stuff like install certain kind of dependencies, whether it's a JavaScript engine or whatever you need within that image. Copy over your gem file, run bundle, copy over the application. And so once you have that Docker file, you build your Docker image, and then you can create a Docker container, which the container is the actual virtual machine that you're going to spin up off of that image. So you always need some kind of base image. And so they have things like Ubuntu or Red Hat, CentOS, or even an Alpine Linux distribution that you can create your image off of. So you have some starting point, you add in your sprinkles of your application, and then you deploy it as a container. And I think at that first level, with building your image off of another image, is where you're going to have your first kind of speed bump, if you will. It's like, what image should I use? 
personally, whenever I deploy a Ubuntu uh, a Linux server, I really prefer Ubuntu, the long-term support version. I've always liked uh, the Debian-based versus RPM. However, there's some drawbacks when you're using a Docker image with a Ubuntu base, and that's going to be your file size. Ubuntu is really large, so if you just build an image or the base Ubuntu image, you're probably going to be looking at about a gigabyte of data, a storage space. And that's not that big of a deal, but if you are now using it for your CI CD, so you have Docker, a runner that will spin up a Docker environment, build your container, run the tests on a, uh, or I'm sorry, you build your image and then run your tests against within a container. That's not that big of a deal if you have it running one time. But if you have a team of people pushing commits, up to your repository, and it's going to run the test on each commit, then you're going to start seeing, okay, we're going to have to provision a one gigabyte image here, another one here, another here, and that's just the base minimal size. So you're going to start running out of disk space on your CI CD, especially if you self-host it and if you don't have a lot of disk space there. But that's going to start causing some problems in the long run. Not only that, but it takes a bit longer to download the image if you're always pulling it from Docker Hub or something. So using Alpine Linux is almost a default no-brainer better choice because it has such a tiny footprint. It's a very minimalistic uh, Linux distribution. The problem with that is all your scripts that you would normally use, whether you're coming from a Red Hat environment, or if you're coming from a Debian environment, you basically don't have. So you have to install things through a different package manager, and you're going to have to rewrite a lot of your scripts, become familiar with the new environment, but you get the benefit that you have a very small footprint now. So I can keep going on if y'all want. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my main thing is, is like putting together a Docker file was really easy. So how do I make sure I'm doing it right? Because, you, you know, you've thrown out all of these. You do this, and then you do this, and then you do this. And, 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 and I'm just like, okay, but that's a lot. One thing I can bring up is I feel like the main issue a lot of people feel when moving to Docker is it's a completely different workflow. Like you're running everything in the container now. So if you're running like, I don't know, bin rails generate migration example you're going to be doing that in the container and if you're in the container you don't have your bash settings or your zsh or all those things so i think one of the biggest arguments against docker that i hear is largely around the fact that it's completely going to change your development workflow and a lot of people if you're really set in your ways they don't want to do that i wonder if you guys have any thoughts on that i'm all about the results personally. So if it totally changes my development workflow and it makes it better, I'm good with it. Um, you know, if it makes me a little uncomfortable while while doing it, fine. But that that's just kind of my take. So yeah. it's going to be a trade-off. You know, do you want to make your deployments a little bit more stable? So do you want to negate the need of having like a staging environment because you know that the deployment's going to work? Or are you wanting to 
you know, make your life easier during the development phase, which in turn could help you reduce the chances of a bug happening in production as well. So it's really where are you going to ultimately put your value and does your application support being able to not use Docker? Are you able to get things running locally, especially if you're in a microservices world where things are built by different groups of people? You know, do they all kind of stay in line with a common Ruby version, gem versions and stuff like that? That you know, using Docker is a now requirement. One thing that's interesting is that as you make these trade-off decisions, at least in my experience, if it becomes a conversation, no one person or one team owns that. So like, okay, I'm trying to deploy this or I'm trying to make sure this can work on a local machine or in Docker, or it's really just about you know, making it easier to test or something. But if everybody's part of the conversation, so there's not, say, a, a DevOps team separate from the developers um, that's making these decisions, then it. Um, I've noticed that the Docker containers evolve over time. We either make more for different purposes or we add things that we actually do need that are, are functionally right. But it's interesting because while you're building these containers, um, you know, what they're for, what they're good for, what, when they get in the way, if that conversation's happening, then it's something that can be fixed. But like you're, like, like Dave's saying, you know, it's, it's really important to figure out what you're doing with them and why. So what are the use cases then? I mean, I, I literally have, well, not literally, but I have almost literally, it feels like, heard, you know, how much glitter goes into, you know, Docker and how wonderful it is. So, you know, when should I be looking at it and going, hey, this is going to solve my problems versus saying, you know, maybe we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Well, I'd say one problem it does solve is if the organization mandates that you develop on a Windows computer and you're in the Ruby on Rails space, then Docker can become a really powerful tool because essentially now it doesn't matter what computer you're on, whether you're on Linux or Windows or Mac OS, because you're going to have the exact same Ruby interpreter and all the benefits of the Linux shell right there with you. So it's going to be more portable, if you will, that you can go to any kind of host OS. But I think if you're building a simple application, meaning that you don't have too many moving parts, it's a monolith, and you have your database, maybe a Redis, some background jobs, or whatever. And if you're staying up to date on things, then I really don't see a huge play that Docker or a huge advantage that Docker is going to introduce on the development environment side of things. Yeah. yeah. And Go ahead. The development side is where I feel like you see the most pushback. But for me, like I see the number one, like my number one benefit from using Docker is like I said, you don't have differences between my machine, his machine, her machine, and our staging and production environments. So even though there's, it, it's sometimes a little painful. I don't feel like it's fully fleshed out or maybe we just haven't built the right tools or I feel like there's a piece missing really with using it in development. It's a little bit slow. I mean, Docker and Chrome could go head to head for the amount of memory they're going to try to pull from your computer. So yeah, there's some pain in development, but if you can try to mitigate that pain, work around it, find better practices, you know, just dig into the problem a little bit more and try to solve it instead of just giving up. I feel like you get 
that benefit of not having different environments, like to me is, it's so key. It's so like, it's the best part in my mind. I know there's a lot of like in production, there's all the, you know, scaling and all that, that I'm not as familiar with, but as someone who uses it in development, there is pain, there's pain in the beginning, but you know, I feel like there's ways to work around it. And I feel like as a community, we just don't have enough resources or people talking about that pain and how to solve it or how to work around it. I think also the, the, the Andrew's point is really important about how uh, not giving up because if you're say a good backend Ruby developer or a good front end designer, and you're using tools that you don't say um, use very often, you're going to be out of your comfort zone. And, and so you're, you're, you're dealing with things that, you know, the conversation isn't happening very well outside of maybe if you know it's just it's not as common to talk about these things it's not as easy to get the information about what's good and there's pieces of the system that you don't think about like andrew is saying about like say scaling or or maybe you don't understand the the ci cd um, workflow and so you don't know how docker could affect that but still figuring out how to solve your problems with it or having a conversation of how to how to get that done it's definitely that that discomfort gap is definitely there because the conversation is not happening. So staying with it until, until you can get through it is, is some good advice, I think. Yeah, one other thing I'm just going to throw out there is that, uh, so I've been working on PodWrench, which is the podcasting system for a while. And I just barely started adding in a system where when you go to download the podcast episode, it actually tracks the download and then redirects you to where the the file actually lives so that we can get numbers on that, right? And that's a separate app. It's a Sinatra app instead of, you know, the main Rails app that gives everybody all the feedback. And then I also have uh, Rescue or uh, Sidekick running in the background. I haven't set either of them up yet, so I'm probably just going to use Sidekick, but we'll see. But all of those can kind of run in different places. And so uh, I, I can see the scaling on those fronts you know, happening across Docker. But the, the main thing with my development practice is that if I want to set both of them up, I can't just, well, I can. I can just tell it to run Sinatra on one port and Rails on the other port. But it'd be nice to be able to have it all run in one cohesive system and just tell it, you know, spin up two Docker images and I'll just, you know, hit the one and hit the other and make sure that they're talking to each other. And so, yeah, as, as my system gets more complex, I, I'm starting to see more benefit in development for that because the two have some interplay between the different systems. Yeah, but I feel like that's where Foreman really shined. You know, Foreman would allow you to hit one command and then it would start up all the services your application needs. But I think personally, Docker belongs. It should be first introduced in the CI CD. So in the CI, then you're going to be able to make sure that the application is running, the tests are running within that Docker container, and you know that you're in a pseudo-production-like environment where if it works in your CI-CD, then it should be able to work in your production environment if you are pushing the Docker images over to production to deploy. So I think that it doesn't really belong in your development environment if you are following generally good practices. Yeah, brief tangent on Foreman. 
I had opened, I opened a PR like a while. That that project's basically done. Like I don't think it's going to be main. It's not maintained anymore. And I opened a PR a while ago, and I know Eileen opened one because something in Rails I think relies on it. But I even reached out to the maintainer. I was like, hey, like I'll like if you give me commit access, like I can take care of this or something. But it doesn't look like it looks like he's gone a little ghost. That's always sad. So I guess here's another question regarding this, because I've been looking at Docker and I've been looking at some of these cloud options like AWS and Azure, just because it's like it'll auto scale. So if we get big all of a sudden, you know, that it'll just do all that work for me and I don't have to actually worry about it. But as I start to kind of attack it, I'm currently not running in Docker, right? I currently, my production setup is just set up on a server on DigitalOcean. So what does that migration look like? I mean, do I, I, I'll have to move my database over to whatever cloud I get put in, or I guess I can move it into a cloud setup on DigitalOcean if they offer that for databases. I know they have a Kubernetes cluster, but yeah, how, how do I approach that kind of a migration? So the first thing that I would do is get your database migrated over to the new host because... Oh, that's of, true, because I can point everybody over there in the meantime. Yeah, or you could have a real-time sync going on from your old environment to your new one for the database, a mirror going on. And as soon as you want to make the cutover, just shut off the web application so no new traffic is hitting the database. And then just change your DNS or you know turn on, flip the switch to the new environment. But for the new environment, if we're talking about going from like DigitalOcean to AWS, and now you want to leverage Docker then I would probably go the route of Elastic Beanstalk because you're going to be able to use your Docker images within Beanstalk and it's going to be Beanstalk that gives you the auto scaling. Mm -hmm. If you want to go even more fancy, then you can go with Kubernetes either on AWS or Azure or the Google Cloud platform. I mean, personally, I think they're pretty much very similar as far as the underlying technology, it's all, you know, the Kubernetes engine. Right. And then that's also going to give you the auto scaling. But I think the one thing about Kubernetes that some people might make the mistake on is that you don't want to deploy your database engine to Kubernetes. That's going to be a really big mistake in the long run because as soon as that pod disappears. So in Kubernetes, they call containers pods. Mm -hmm. And then there is an inherent promise from Kubernetes that you say that you want two, two of these containers up and running at any given point in time. It's going to fulfill that promise regardless of which server it's putting it on, which they call nodes. So if you have two web servers that you say that has to be up and running at any given point in time. And if you have three servers within your Kubernetes environment, so three nodes, then it's going to pick whichever best one it can to put the server on there. But with your database engine, like whether you're using Postgres or MySQL or whatever, you're still going to be able to persist your data no matter what with a volume claim. That's not going to be an issue. But the issue is going to be, what happens when the health check on one of those pods is not healthy 
for whatever reason may have nothing to do with your actual database engine, then it's going to destroy and try to recreate that pod. And that's where you have your problem, that you're now disconnecting your backend database from being able to communicate to your web servers, and you're going to have a blip of out time. Your database or your web servers are going to have to reconnect to the database, and it's you're going to be chasing a ghost there because you're not going to really have that good visibility that, oh, my database keeps restarting, and that's causing a problem with the web application. You're just going to see your web application is failing each time. Interesting. So any kind of service like Elasticsearch, database engines, Redis, all of that kind of thing needs to exist outside of your Kubernetes environment with the appropriate services. Uh, appropriate services. So Amazon has each one of those available. So does Microsoft and all the other major hitters. So that's where your database engine, Redis engine, all of that stuff needs to live. But then your web application is getting served through Kubernetes, through auto-scaling and all of its benefits. Right. And I think one good point about Docker that we haven't mentioned yet is that your deployment time to production is extremely minimal. Because especially if you were just pulling a Docker image, so you build your image, you push it up to what they call is a registry, which is basically a place of source where you can pull down an image and a specific tag of that image, then all your production environment has to do is pull down those new images and launch them. Now your application's deployed. You shouldn't have to do any kind of bundle install or rake assets pre-compiled because all of that should have already been done in your CICD step when you built those Docker images. Right. And then because your database and your, like all, all of your state, including in, in some cases, I mean, you mentioned Redis, so your caching and everything else all live somewhere else. So it just plugs right into it and it's off. It just yep. runs. Yeah. And that's really nice. If, if you've ever had the situation where you try to deploy and then somewhere along the line it fails because of some package on your computer that you don't have or something like that, like all those problems are gone. And like deploying takes a few seconds. It's one command. Like Dave said, all the images are pre-built. They're ready to roll. They're ready for you to just like press the launch button and then you're ready to go. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com rogues. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. 
Yeah. And again, I think I would circle back to the development environment. It doesn't, I don't personally don't think Docker belongs on the development environment on most applications. You know, I would let my CICD take that brunt work of building the images, testing out everything to make sure it's working correctly. Because personally, I want my development environment to be how I want it. Now, that doesn't mean that I should have some kind of crazy and elaborate development environment. You know, especially if we're talking about developing on a Mac or Linux per se. So I think, you know, you should try to keep your development environment pretty streamlined. You know, have a couple of dot files that you have backed up and have a couple of scripts like the brew file that we mentioned in the last episode where you can quickly reinstall all your applications. And if you're staying pretty close to the default configurations of those applications, then you're going to be able to get your environment up and running pretty quickly. And it's going to be very repeatable. So if you are on Windows or something again, then Docker might be a very viable alternative if you're not wanting to use the Windows subsystem for Linux and Windows 10. I would push back a tiny bit on that just because... If we have a new developer walk in the door and we hand him a fresh new laptop, he can be up and running with all, like he, all he has to do is pull down the project, download Docker, and then build the stuff. And he's ready to start developing right then and there. He doesn't have to get brew install all these things, and which means he has to get brew and he's got to get all the right Ruby and all that. Like you can get up and running so much faster with Docker from a fresh machine or a fresh developer like that that's just my opinion on that. Yeah, and there is truth to that. You know, I will agree with you on that point. If we're talking about the initial boot time from a brand new computer to being productive, Docker I think is going to always win. But how often are you refreshing your computer and stuff? That's not going to be a every week or month occurrence. You're going to keep your same operating system up and running for a certain amount of time before the computer crashes or you decide to you know, reprovision it. So now you're having to live with Docker as your development environment for a substantial amount of time. And I don't think it's worth it personally. Whatever you do, one thing that I've experienced with this is um, I've worked in organizations where we would build a, a getting started document for a new developer and just put best ideas of what we do. And then we make it the goal of that person's direct manager to get them to commit code their first day. So the conversation is happening. Like, all right, so we're going to get them to commit code the first day. That means they're going to be up and running. They're going to know how we're running systems, understand how to add value immediately. And then whether you're using Docker the first day or you're going to homebrew or whatever you're going to do, um, the conversation is happening in the organization. And then if it really is true that that organization has uh, you know, a lot of complexity or a lot of weird side systems, sometimes people come into larger systems and it's really, really hard. Just, you know, it's not enough to have a laptop running. So, okay, this is how you get access to, you know, a sandbox environment for these kinds of services. And then, so once you get people up and running and then you can refine really what's, what's a good fit. And, and then create the right culture around, all right, who's going to run this on their laptop? Who's going to run this in Docker? What's working? Why? You know, what can you teach me that I don't know? Um, that, that seems to have worked in several organizations I've, I've been in. And, and I think it fits both of your points fairly well. Yeah. 
And one nice thing about not using Docker on the development environment is that doing the initial setup and provisioning, you're going to learn some of the things about that application right off the bat that if using Docker, you will not be exposed to. For example, like what environment variables are required? What are the different kind of dependencies that we're using? Are we using image magic or VIPs or something like that for the image processing? You know, I think a lot of those things are going to just kind of disappear if you use Docker on your development environment. And that could be foundational information that someone would not be privy to otherwise if coming on board a new project. Yeah, I agree. But also, I think where I would push back a little bit is just if you have a Docker file that has all of your dependencies, you can quickly see right then and there, oh, I have I need image magic and I need this and that. And it's all literally right there in one living doc. Like it's living living documentation. Someone doesn't have to update that because if they do, then you're adding new dependencies. It's, it's, to me, it's kind of like it's living documentation. And I don't know how y'all do this, but I just use like an M file and all my stuff is in the M file. So all you do, if you want to know what um, environment variables are needed, you can check that file. They're already pre-laid out for you. And if you want to know what dependencies the app has, you can check the Docker file. They're all listed right there. And if you want to know, like, and the Docker um, compose file has all the containers you're running, which would also give you some insight. So I feel like it's, yes, you're right. If you, if you subject yourself to pain, you will learn more about the system. But if you have all of it right then and there that you can see, I don't know, I just, I'm gonna take that route every day. What I tend to do when I greenfield a project is I'll start with a .env and a make file, and that'll handle my dependencies and my environment variables. I'll build it up and I write documentation and tests so that I'm kind of informing my future self, how am I doing? And then when it's time for me to get into a Docker file, you know, and then it does what you're saying so that I've got that at every stage, whether it's my local laptop or, you know, something that I can containerize. Um, and then when I um, hand it off to other people, I ask them to, to write the cheat sheet for the, um, for the project so that they can kind of reintroduce themselves to this is what matters. This is the dependencies. This is the gotchas that we know about. And then um, I try to keep, what, however we go forward, I try to keep the conversation around the seams. So it's kind of easy to get into, like, say, I'm going to go handle, you know, the data migration. So I'm going to go handle the business logic for this part of, this, of the application. But in the seams between these things or the seams between services, you know, hey, I've got this, um, I'm going to use Amazon's queuing service. And, um, you know, so that's a little bit difficult because if I'm going to use an external service, how do I run that locally? And so getting people talking about those seams stuff that you can't put in a single container or you don't want to, that, that seems to grow the team and the kind of the collective understanding of what, what's going on, what, what's hard, what's painful, what are we not doing well, you know, what's the risk, you know, when we leave it in this crazy state that, you know, and that's the other thing that's hard is the service area, area of, a, of a system grows. There's more and more seams <laughs> and then it gets to be in, in a more and more chaotic state. And so trying to keep people focused, say in a Docker container or in an environment that they trust really helps. But anyway, those are some of the growing pains that I've experienced trying to keep 
this idea of how do you keep people productive and get the right conversations going in the organization. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And I'm coming at this from a newer developer standpoint. I have had MySQL get, I don't, it's specifically MySQL get borked on my machine. So many times I've literally lost days of productivity, like nothing related to the project itself. It's my system, something happened. I probably ran some command or I accidentally upgraded all my brew files and now none of my projects run. It's those types of things that are not, there's it's, there's no amount of documentation for the project. It's not project specific. It's like relative to your specific development environment. The Not having to deal with those problems anymore is just like, like I said, I've lost days and I feel like every new developer is going to have a situation like that. And if you're in a fast paced company, like you can't really afford to lose that day of productivity because you accidentally deleted my SQL. Yeah, I've, I've, I've had that, that with, with Postgres. I had like a year or two where Postgres would get borked and I Ouch. had to redo a ton of things and I didn't know what I was doing. I just started to believe that something was wrong with Postgres. So I don't know what I was doing back then, but I did switch to Docker during that because I just couldn't afford, but it seemed to come up in every project I was in and on several different laptops that I was using. So I, I had some bad practices or the community was making some changes that I wasn't keeping up on. But trying to to find those pain points and figure out, well, what are we going to do about that? Uh, and that's coming from not a new developer. I think it happens to any, anybody. But the frustration of, hey, I'm, I'm just, it's just supposed to work takes me completely out of the mindset of what have I got to do to deliver this next feature? Or what have I got to do to, to move this, this product forward? Um, yeah. That's really a painful thing. And, you know, I think that Docker in your development environment is a gateway drug for Kubernetes in your development environment. Because <laughs> once you introduce Kubernetes in your development environment, I'm speaking from experience here, you have just overly complicated your environment so much that you lose productivity. I because, was going to say, I can't decide if I'm getting excited or scared. <laughs> you be very scared because you lose certain aspects. You know, in Docker, if you're running a container, then that container is up and running. And if it crashes and burns or whatever, it's still running. And you're going to have to then get in there and troubleshoot it. But with Kubernetes, if a pod fails to run or if a health check doesn't pass after a certain amount of time, it's going to destroy that container or that pod and then relaunch it. So not only that, but now you have an additional layer. So you have a virtual machine running Minikube or Micro K8s running on your local machine that has the Kubernetes engine. So there's your first layer. And then your second layer is going to be the actual pods. So if you want to get into one of your pods, then you're essentially, you know, you could SSH into your Kubernetes environment and then SSH into your pod to get access to it. And not only does that complicate things, but then what about your volumes now? You know, how are you going to handle those? So your volumes are running like your application code. It's running within the container. Micro K8s or um, Kubernetes or Minikube doesn't have any visibility into your application code running. It just knows that it needs to pass a health check. So then how do you get your local host environment 
to push up code up to there. So you're then developing locally on your host OS, but then you're executing your code up in Kubernetes. And so that does bring up a point of a really cool tool that will allow you to do that. And it's called Cloud Native Development or CND, not to be confused with CDN, but essentially what that does is it allows you to say, hey, I'm running Kubernetes on my local machine and I want to be able to develop locally. So I have all my code in a folder and I want that to be pushed up to Kubernetes to a specific pod. So I'm able to then develop using Kubernetes, which is similar to developing with Docker, but it has all the other things running. So now I have a complete mirror of what my production environment truly looks like with the interconnectivities of everything. And then I'm developing locally on my host machine. So I've used it before and it does a pretty good job with syncing the data from my local environment up to the pod in Kubernetes. And if it fails to load or something, then you know it doesn't blow it away like Kubernetes normally should. So, I mean, that's one kind of solution, work workaround to it. But I think you're just opening up the door for that kind of workflow to be introduced into your environment. But overall, if the alternative is having to beat your head against the wall, dealing with poor architectural decisions made early on, and you're dealing with 10 different Ruby versions in a microservices world, then you know what? That's probably going to be better than the alternative of trying to get a super complicated development environment up and running you know, once a week because the whole thing just crashed and burned. So in, in some instances, Docker can be very helpful in your local environment. Huh. Well, I, I'm more inspired to try it now. <laughs> at least in my local environment because I've played with it but then it was like okay now I gotta get work done <laughs> so uh, one other thing Dave uh, you mentioned that the best place to start is to get it running in your CICD so do you just create a docker file and then tell CICD to build off of the docker file or pretty much so you know if we're talking a monolith application you would have your docker file within the root directory of your application and then you would have probably a yaml file which is your ci pipeline so it has what's defined you know the different steps in that process and then you would have a build step where it builds the docker image and it pushes it up to the registry then you would have a step in your pipeline that would pull that Docker image, it would run the spec tests, and then you would have it do whatever else it needs. So depending on your situation, some of the steps might be flipped around depending on what you have going on. But for the most part, it's going to just kind of work naturally. And then if you have a pipeline step for deploy to production or deploy to a staging environment, then you're going to be able to just reference that Docker image. So something that has been, quote, battle tested through your CI is then going to be able to be pushed up to production. And one cool thing, and this is where I first introduced Kubernetes into my workflow, and it's been really enjoyable, is that within my CI CD, on the staging step, 
I don't actually have a staging environment stood up. Instead, I have a Kubernetes cluster that I use for staging. So every commit that I make, it goes through the CICD steps, and then we'll build the Docker image. It'll push it up to a Kubernetes environment. So I have a YAML file which basically describes all of the pods that it needs or deployments, and then the services and the ingresses for the endpoints. And it'll give me a FQDN or fully qualified domain name, which will allow me to visit that site for that particular commit. So I'm able to then see live what changes and their effects for that particular commit. And once I'm done, it can do a cleanup and destroy those pods. And then I can deploy it off to production. So... I think Kubernetes definitely has some really good use cases in that area and also for the production environment. But I think a lot of cases, you know, Kubernetes was invented to solve a problem. You know, uh, the I think the Docker ecosystem was really needing something like that because the alternative was trying to manage these different Docker version, uh, your image versions and tags and things were getting deployed to the um, the wrong environment or you're deploying the wrong tag to your production environment and it was causing a lot of problems. So Kubernetes in a lot of sense solves that problem, but I think we're also then introducing it uh, a bit prematurely in other areas. Nice. Anything else we should dive on here? How do you run your tests? Do you just run them locally? Like when you're building your own code? So as I'm writing the tests and writing the application code, I'll run my local specs. And then when I push it up to the CICD, it will launch a Docker uh, runner. It'll build everything, run the tests again, the full suite. I might have to jump on some uh, Zoom calls or Google Hangouts or something and just have you show me what you're doing, both of you. Yeah, Docker does have a uh, pretty good command line that you can do to see all your containers that are running. And then you can copy that container code because it's going to be like your application name plus a hash. And then from there, you can you know SSH into that container through a Docker command. And if you have just an image that you've already built, but then you need to get in there and troubleshoot that image. Maybe something's just not working properly. You can actually launch a new container with that image and SSH directly into it. Cool. Hey, folks, I want to tell you about a great system that I just found that has made my life a ton easier. That's Cloud66. A lot of folks think that deploying is a pain. I kind of grew up as an ops guy, and so I never really felt that way until I tried Cloud66 and realized that the way that I was doing it with Capistrano, pushing stuff up to DigitalOcean, it really was kind of a pain. And when things didn't work, I had to go in and I had to bang my head against the wall to figure it out. Plus, all the setup stuff was just a big headache. And what I found with Cloud66 is that it's a really nice way just to get everything set up. I just told it I had a Rails app, and off it went. It set it all up. It does the deployment, and now that I have other developers working with me on PodWrench, which is what I'm using it for here, all I have to do is give them access, and then they can go push the button for me, and it gets deployed. It's really nice. It's straightforward. It has all of my environment variables in it, so I didn't have to do any setup that way either. I just had to go in, put in my AWS credentials and a few other things that I was using for third-party apps, 
and it set it up and ran it. So if you're looking for a great solution for deployments, use the promo code RubyRogues. That's all one word, capital R, capital R, RubyRogues, for $66 off Cloud66. This only works for new users, but man, it is awesome. So go check them out, cloud66.com. All right, well, I've got to jump off because I've got uh, kids at Dance Festival today. It's the last week of school, so I'm going to push this over to picks. Um, Andrew, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, so I found what is new now my new favorite VS Code extension. It's called Rails Flip Flop. You can use this um, extension to if like if you're in a test file or if you're in if you're in a model, you can. Um, use this extension to quickly flip to, it'll open a pane to the test for that file. Or if you're in the test, it'll open um, a pane to the file you're writing the test for. So that's been really nice. Cool. Dave, what are your picks? So I'll pick one of the things that I mentioned, C&D, Cloud Native Development. And so I'll post a, a link to that. But then also a power tool for you, Chuck, that I've picked up recently because I was doing some remote work and I needed some oomph in a saw. So I picked up a DeWalt FlexVolt circular saw. Thing is freaking amazing. It just cuts through wood like nothing. I had a Ryobi one a few years back. It would barely get through like two pieces of lumber before the battery died or it just you know didn't have the power to really saw all the way through it. But this thing just ripped through wood. It's really awesome. Yeah, I have one. I can't remember what brand I have, but uh, I've used it a good deal, including on my podcasting booth. So yeah, it's a handy one to have. David, what are your picks? So I have a strange one today. Um, I'm going to pick Warren Buffett's letters to his shareholders (laughs) at Berkshire Hathaway. And the reason for that, there's a few reasons for that. One of them is um, in both my undergrad and my graduate experience, um, I had many professors tell me that I could get a better education by reading his letters than, than, than my degree. And another one is that just reading how he breaks down a problem, how he discusses important things uh, directly, um, it would fit very, very well in any programmer meeting, any boss to employee meeting, being able to just speak directly and talk and figure out what matters. It just seems that that forthright communication style is something that I want more. So I've been reading through them, I actually have arriving today in the mail. I, I, I bought a, um, a paper copy of them because I, I tend to finish it when I have it in paper. Um, so I'm going through decades worth of um, basically what's going on in the world economy, uh, <laughs> how to be straightforward about problems when, they're, when, they, when they occur, and, and basically how to be you know, a direct human being. Nice. That sounds really, really fascinating. I'm going to jump in with a few picks here myself. So I inadvertently talked about a project that I am launching. By the time this comes out, I should have at least the kinks worked out. But uh, I've been working on a system for people. I keep getting asked by people, how do you stay current? And, you know, generally I tell people, you know, go to your users groups and here's where I generally look online to stay current and things like that. But people tend to want a little bit more than that. And so I am creating a community called Everywhere RB. The other thing is, is I, I've been telling people as they've been looking for jobs, go join your local users group because you'll meet people and you'll get to know what people care about in your area. And a lot of people either can't make it or they can't find one, which by the way, if you can't find one, go to meetup.com and search for one anyway. Um, I've had people surprised that there's one in their area, even though they don't live in a major metro area. So 
go look. But yeah, if you can't find anything, then I'm setting up a users group is essentially what I'm modeling it after. And I just want to set up a users group that anybody can attend from anywhere. Now I'm going to charge for it. And that way I can send nice things to the people who speak at it and things like that. But anyway, if you go to everywhereRB.com, you should be able to join the wait list for when I launch it. I'm kind of going to be waiting for critical mass on the wait list before I launch it. And that way we have, you know, at least a uh, uh, hundred or so people in there talking to each other. Because what I found is when I've set up communities like this before, I have people kind of trickle in and then, you know, the conversation kind of peters out. Now I have some other things going on that are going to keep the conversation going as well. But because, yeah, not everybody's in and involved, at, you know, on a regular basis, it, it just doesn't work. So anyway, so we're going to do uh, monthly meetings. We're going to have speakers probably people you've heard on the show. We're going to have a learning resource of the month. So it might be a course, it might be a book, it might be something else. And we're all going to work through it together and then discuss it in the forums or the Slack room. And I'm also going to do a roundtable chat afterward. And so I'll just rotate attendees in through the webinar feature on Zoom, which is where I'm going to be holding the meeting. So we'll just do it right after the meetings. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be talking to people in the forums and things like that. So what I'm hoping to create is a community where people can come and ask questions. They can have discussions kind of like what we have on here in the forums or on the Slack. And, you know, people can be involved that way. And then they can also meet people who may work at a company they want to work at or may, you know, inspire them to go learn a technology they need to learn in order to have the skills to get the job that they want or, you know, advance their career where they're at or whatever. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that it can also sort of be a sort of uh, community coaching where, you know, everybody's helping everybody advance. So, yeah. And if, if you can't find it, uh, I did get ev- everywhererb.com. But if that doesn't work, go to keepcurrentacademy.com and then just click on Everywhere RB. Um, I'm also doing this for JavaScript. So everywherejs.com should also work for that community. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping to get it launched next month, but it really just depends on how many people get on that wait list and, and how much uh, momentum we can get. So yeah, so that's what I'm working on. And then I think that's it. So well, that was a fun discussion. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of in, uh, inspired to go look at Docker. Again, <laughs> we'll see you next year. Yeah, feels that way sometimes. All right, well, I'm going to go find my shoes and go to a dance festival. All right, talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>